June 27th, 2019, it's a Watt from Pedro show. Thank <laughs> you. 
Live for Pedro Show. Happy Thursday. Brother Matt had to go to the dentist. His mouth is hurting. But I'm not just man alone here in my pad, Pedro, because through the wonders of those Estonian software engineers with their SCAP invention, I got Ger David Gerard. <laughs> Sorry about that, David. Uh, you, you call me from uh, somewhere in Massachusetts? Actually, I'm calling you from Albany. I relocated there a couple of years ago. Oh, wow. Albany, New York. Yep. Okay. Capital the state Canada. capital. Right. Hudson River. Yes. Okay, because I think the last time we talked, you were in uh, near Boston, right? That is correct. Okay. Right. So I was in there. I was in the Massachusetts for about twenty plus years. So I mean, I was there for a pretty long time. I know, though, way back you did do music in New York City. Yes. So okay. Well, we'll yeah. get into we'll get into the timeline. Yeah. Uh, first, I want to say what we we started off the show with John Coltrane doing uh, offered one of his last gigs. Mm-hmm. That temple, huh? Yeah. And, well, you always open with John Coltrane too. Yeah, but this kind of tune is kind of late. Ah. Well, they're all special to me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then f from you, off your new album, mm -hmm. Resonating from Higher Consciousness, which I thought kind of related to Mr. Coltrane and Offering. Uh -huh. David. Uh, yes. What's your earliest musical recollection? What, in terms of me as a composer? Just music, no, because you probably were a boy or something, you know, a young person, not a composer yet. Maybe you yeah. were, though. But you're just your earliest music memory that you got in your mind. Okay, well, that would probably be just growing up. And um, in my house, uh, I am one of uh, seven siblings and a family of nine was kind of like a black version of the Brady Bunch without a housekeeper. Um, but, uh, but, uh, all the, my siblings and my parents had really eclectic musical tastes. And I didn't realize that it was really eclectic until I got much older. You know, I didn't think there was anything unusual that my dad was into Al Green and Joe Tex. And, uh, one of my brothers was into Laura Nero and Joni Mitchell. It just seemed like, well, that's what they like. And my sister was a huge Beatles fan. That was the only group she was interested in. So she had all the Beatles albums. So I grew up hearing all the Beatles albums. My older brother, Jimmy, um, was a drummer uh, in high school. And uh, I think probably he influenced me a little bit just because he was the only other person in the house that was not just, you know, musically interested, but actually was playing an instrument. I mean, I took classes in school for uh, guitar and violin, um, but he was the one that was really kind of actively doing it. He was in a couple of high school bands, and his taste was really, really eclectic. I think he was probably the most eclectic of all my siblings, especially when I look back. And again, I think about how it didn't seem that unusual um, but I was obviously a very naive, you know, black kid living in the Bronx that I thought it, you know, it was not unusual uh, that my brother had uh, painted the album cover Abraxas Bold as Love and Dayglow fluorescent paint on his wall. So. Oh, wow. Well, you know, yes. <laughs> I got to tell you, David, uh, I was going to ask you what town, but you said Bronx. OK. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, urban, obviously. Now, a lot of, in your, uh, 
Well, you didn't really tell me your earliest recollection, but what you remember being young is a lot of listeners in your house, but only your brother Jimmy was a player. Yes. Okay. And uh, I tell you, those days, I remember being a teenager, you know, it's the 70s and stuff, and a lot of guys painted their, sometimes just play, paint their bulkheads black, you know, so uh, the, because we had ultraviolet lights we would put on the posters, you know? Right. <laughs> so pe- uh, people don't do that so much anymore, but uh, people, I remember in the 70s, really did their rooms up. Well, Jimmy was just like that. He did it. He had the black light, and he did, and he did a really faithful reproduction of the album cover, which again was impressive because he wasn't the artistically inclined person in the family. But he did a really marvelous job of taking one entire wall and making it, you know, a reproduction <laughs> of that album cover. How did he get in the drums, Dave? Um, you know what? I don't know. I think he just kind of fell into it. Um, and uh, he had a drum kit in his bedroom. Yeah, I was going to ask, in the Bronx, where do you prac <laughs> drums? <laughs> well, he practiced in the house, and he yeah. practiced in the bedroom, and we didn't get that many complaints from downstairs or And none from the family, neighbors. the other uh, brothers and sisters. What was that? The, also, the other family members didn't care. Well, he, he usually practiced when, like, you know, most of us were like not in the house ah, so it wasn't okay. an issue you know how that is with a drum kit and stuff but um sure, sure. but and actually i guess my earliest musical memory was that i actually hopped on his drum kit when he wasn't practicing and just noodled around i would put on um albums like i remember i put on magazines album real life and i was playing uh the Magazine. drums of it's the yes. the singer from the Buzzcocks. Yes. I saw Howard them Devota. at the Whiskey. And yeah. then Barry Adamson, they had a great bass man. He's awesome. He's And so was John McGosh. I really, oh, the you know, guitar man, him. right? The, from Susie. Yes. Well, actually from Magazine and then went on to Susie. Oh, I'm sorry. So, yeah. So, he um, was really good. In fact, good. he's on the first album. And so I remember I was playing along to The Light Pours Out of Me, and I was kind of replicating the drums that um, I think John Doyle was the uh, drummer on that first album. So I was kind of following along with him and playing the drums. And, you know, it was rudimentary, but it was like, it was good. And I realized that I did have a sense of timing and a sense of rhythm. Yeah, but David, um, David, where did you hear about Magazine in the Bronx? Was there some record stores? No, it was a radio station. I think it was uh, WPLJ okay. was the radio station that was playing a lot of alternative stuff. Yeah, because, uh, you know, it was kind of small scene in those days. Well, it was just emerging, that stuff, right. you know, and they were playing, you know, they were playing commercial stuff and uh, and then stuff that was like on the fringe back in the days when, like, you know, the police weren't classic rock, you know, and, they, you know, the first album was considered, you know, just like Revelation and stuff like that and Early Cure and all of those groups that seem to be kind of mainstream when you look at the landscape today. But back then, they were definitely very cutting edge and very few commercial stations. In fact, I don't think any commercial stations other than, you know, those two like alternative stations that were out there. It was WLIR out of Long Island was another one. And they played uh, a lot of like Susie and, and Magazine and Buzzcocks and, you know, the you guys, like. And that's where I got turned on to them by. You guys got a Pacifica station, WBAI, because we have a KPFK out here. And so there was some 
like Richard Meltzer had a radio show, you know, so mm-hmm. maybe some wild music. Uh, Carl Stone, an experimental electronic music guy, had a show called uh, Imaginary Landscapes after a John Cage piece. Yes. And that's why I first heard some experimental music was KPFK here at Pacificus. I think it started in Berkeley, the first one, but I think we were the second one. Mm. Uh, now, you told me at school uh, you got to uh, do some music. Were you in the choir or the marching band or shit like that? I wasn't in a, a band or I wasn't in the choir. I think I did a little singing in the church choir, but nothing. In, in school, it was kind of rudimentary that you had to take a couple of music classes so i started with a violin i did the violin for a while and then i moved on when i got older i i I took some guitar classes um and i enjoyed it i mean i liked playing the violin um but actually i really had a preference with a cello but there was no money in the budget uh for the cello unfortunately so um i had to i was stuck with the violin then when i got to high school we had i was in i went to the uh high school of art and design i actually majored in cartooning and animation and photography and um they actually had music rooms that were not used uh i think they had a like a music class or whatever uh curriculum but then it got cut but they still kept the practice rooms and so i would rush through some of my rudimentary uh, rudimentary classes and i would sneak down stairs to the practice room and i would just kind of be just noodling around on a piano i mean just no idea ah, so what i was doing first, this is the first self-taught. time uh, this is the first time you get on a keyboard yeah it was because then i was going to ask about that because since your music nowadays i mean you still bring in some guitar but you like to work a lot with the keyboard. So I'm wondering what was your introduction to keyboard? Yeah. And it would be practicing um, in the practice rooms when I was in high school doing that and uh, and kind of rudimentary. Uh, and a couple of other people that I knew in high school, you know, were definitely more talented than I was and um, in terms of, you know, proficiency. Uh, but I just wanted to see what I could do. And I would just kind of play around with, with intervals and triads and chords and and kind of piece things together. And then when I actually on my own started kind of exploring uh, music theory and the like, I found out that I had a very intuitive sense of harmony and a very intuitive sense of melody, which is why I could kind of like pluck down and I could say, oh, OK, well, this chord doesn't work that note is a little flat maybe if i go down you know one tone maybe that will be the one that will work and i and i kind of did that by trial and never but i i figured out basically you know the basic triads and chords that worked and then i would just kind of piece them together um but i didn't do anything recording wise until i was out of college and that was in 1984 when i did my first actual uh recordings of stuff but not commercially i want to uh play uh Oleander Strut.
Don't 
And what becomes of the urgency of fancy or ambition when you have the dead to attend to? And the dead will not be denied. They will not be resolved regardless of the magnitude or application of love and loss. We collect ourselves for a funeral, thinking to call it a day and put it to rest. But all that comes of it is an awkward waltz with those not yet dead, like soggy crepe paper and mud on your church shoes when you get home and wonder why you should bother taking them off before getting into bed. If you ask me what I believe, I really couldn't tell you. Still, I look up at the late afternoon sky in November and see how the contrails look like they've been sliced into the thickening blue air and are bleeding gold and light until the wound turns to smoke and the heavens heal themselves.
Live from Pedro Show. Uh, you just heard On Any Thursday by David Gerard. The head of that was Guy by Voices, the Rally Boys. Mike Baguette with Four. Dardo with Human Becoming. In front of that was the Mesthetics. Once upon a time, Joe Lolly's back in the U.S. Swenson Klein out of Canada with Sacred Fathers. Before that, M.B. Jones. I think he's in Busan these days. Internet Trolls version 2. Ahead of that was brand new Nels Klein, Yuka Honda. Yuka C. Honda, I'm sorry. Soon will be Flood. And then uh, out of Cleveland, the Duo Decibel System with brand new uh, Rooftop Garden. I think they got a gig. Miss Melvis was telling me. Uh, she said, What? You should tell people. That we're gonna play, but <laughs> you know how that goes. Let's see, Ms. Mills. No, I can't. Duo. Yeah, I can't. Anyway, go to their website, look them up. Duo Decibel System. See where they're playing this weekend. I can't find. <laughs> it's like ten thousand emails ago. I'm sorry. And we started off with uh, David Gerard with only Anders Strut, and he's got something in lightness with regarding that tune. David, go ahead. Uh, well, uh, Only Under Strut is actually one of several tunes that I've written that I would consider um, inspired by or a tribute to uh, a band called Mother Mallet's Portable Masterpiece Company. Um, they were actually one of the first electronic ensembles ever uh, back in the early 70s, and they actually worked with Bob Moog of the Moog synthesizer. He had a uh, studio out in Trumansburg, New York, and um, they were one of the first people to, to play on his early instruments, and they were doing interpretations of John Cage uh, and the like. And I discovered them, I think I was listening to Pandora, believe it or not, and um, I forgot what station I had programmed into it, but uh, a track from them came up, and I really liked what they were doing. So I ended up uh, checking out their early recordings, which are really, really great. And they certainly deserve more attention, even in the electronic uh, world, than they get credit for, because they really were innovative. And so... Uh, hey, David, what about Silver Apples? I'm not familiar with them. Yeah, they were a band from the 60s. It was a duet. It was uh, electronics and a drummer. So two guys. Uh, mm -hmm. And they were kind of early on. Yeah. Have you ever heard of this uh, gigantic synthesizer called Tonto? No. Tonto, there's an album called T T Tonto's Incredible Headband. And actually, Stevie, Stevie Wonder, it was these two guys in England who kind of put it together. I mean, this thing was big. Like I said, a whole room. I think it's back in England now. But Stevie Wonder actually used this for, like, Inner Vision and three of his albums. You can't hear it. It's not up front, but there's this... right bubbling kind of synth underneath stuff like superstition and living for yeah. the city yeah. but that's interesting so yeah just so kind of, with mother mallet it was actually all three members of the band were playing uh synthesizers okay. uh in unison and because it was the early prototypes of bob moog's um synthesizers there was a lot of issues about trying to keep it in tune oh yeah and they, right. and they did a lot of live performance so that could, had to be even more you know, walking a tightrope to be performing, you know, stuff live and have to worry about, you know, it's just going to drop 
out of tune in so the middle of a Somebody was talking to me about this. They said the, the biggest problem those days was power supplies. They weren't re- uh, The power wasn't regulated enough. Mm-hmm. So things drifted all over the place. I, I'm thinking of a three-synthesizer band in the 60s called uh, Tangerine Dream. Yeah, very uh, familiar with them. I would cite them as an Reeves, right? Klaus Schulze. Yeah. And in fact, as a teenager, he had some records on a German label called Brain, I think. And man, mm-hmm. they were pretty trippy for me. <laughs> so, uh, so tell me about Ar- 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 Oleander Strutt. Um, so, so Oleander Strutt is one of many tunes that I, I, in, I consider inspired by them. And so that's why I named it that. And actually, I a lot of times when I do, I've done a couple of things that were uh, homages to Mother Mallet, and I tend to like mix up the names so that people who know the band will know from the title that it's a reference. And the first time I did wow. that was on an album called Moog Opus Number no. One, which came out in 2007. And I wrote a piece called Harpsichord Motion, which was an uh, amalgam of their two tunes, Harpsichord Truck and Cirrus Motion. So I kind of combined the two, and that's what I did. And then I did a, a piece called The Mallard Has Landed uh, that was on um, Moog Opus, uh, the sequel of that uh, Moog Opus album, uh, Moog Opus Redo. And I did uh, The Mallard Had Landed is, uh, Has Landed is on that. And then when I was just composing that particular piece, it just felt so much in the vein of what they did that I, I felt I just had to give a tip of the hat and name it, you know, Oleander Strut after their Oleo Strut, which is on their first album. And, and when we say Mallard, we're talking about a duck, right? Yep, indeed. That was their um, their logo. Was it? You would love it. Their logo was a a a duck um, uh, lighting upon a synthesizer. Was there? <laughs> you know what's another trippy connect? You know, mm-hmm. uh, called their band Mallard. Was no. the guy, well the guys from the Magic Band when they left the cabin? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's uh, like Mark Boston. The uh, what was his name? Uh, Oh man, Zoot Horn Rolo, one of the guitar. The, uh, I think the uh, God. Why am I drawing a blank now? But uh, but the Rocket band was Morton, called Mallard. Rocket Morton. Rocket Morton. Those guys. They made a band called Mallard. Did not know that. That's a, that's a trip. So that's why I want to check it. You know the Mallard, the duck. It's yes. kind of the grandfather of all the ducks. All mm-hmm. the ducks are related. You know, most ducks nowadays are, are domesticated. Those white ones, yeah. they were bred for eating. Mm-hmm. The guys who can fly are the mallards. And uh, we got some here in Pedro. I study them. It's trippy. Half the year, the boys, their feathers changed to look like women. I know. It's trippy. I thought, like, all the boys had left uh, the little park here, Averill Park, but it wasn't. I found out about this thing called Eclipse Plumage. Oh my goodness! So this band had huge effect on. So, so what happened when you uh, graduated college in nineteen eighty four? Well, uh, when I graduated college, I just was kind of figuring out what to do. And I, as I said, I took some classes, music classes related, and I had noodled around. And I just, just as an experiment, I just started kind of 
writing some stuff on synthesizer and I actually started doing some recordings and I went to uh, Dubway Studio, which used to be located in the garment district of um, New York City, uh, a great like warehouse space. And I would go in there and I would work on, you know, some ambient things. Um, Al Houghton, the engineer, had uh, synthesizers um, that I worked on. Obviously, they weren't Moog synthesizers, but they were, you know, they were Yamaha and Roland. And I used to work on some strategies with them. And I think I also had a couple of like portable keyboards at home that I picked up. Uh, one was from Radio Shack, which actually surprised me that it was because it was so cheap. I was kind of surprised that I actually could get some interesting sounds out of it. And so I would kind of come up with some ideas at home, then I'd go into the studio um, and record it. And I also recorded some very new, wavy, 80s stuff, song stuff, like in, that was inspired by like Gary Newman and Talking Heads. Um, but I didn't really release that commercially, um, but I just did it for my own enjoyment. Uh, and the first thing I did, Ambient, I called it a piece of the desert and it was a five part suite. Um, and I ended up going and recording that um, at Dubway studio in 1984. But I didn't go back to actually composing or writing any music until 2004. I took a, a very long hiatus from that because I just felt very burned out uh, by a lot of stuff, um, personal stuff that was going on in New York City in the 80s. Uh, the AIDS crisis took a lot of my attention and sapped a lot of my energy uh, dealing with so many people that I, I knew that had uh, were sick and dying from the disease kind of took precedence over being creative for me. Yeah, and I, I started remember. getting involved with that. Those were became, the heavy, that heavy sort of, times. Those were yes. heavy times. Yeah. They were very rough times. So it took me a long time to even think about what was the point of you know, pursuing this music. And um, and then it was 2004 when I heard of CD Baby and it was like, you know, independent musicians, you can record your own stuff, record your own uh, CDs and sell them on our platform. So it's actually CD Baby that I think kind of made me think, okay, so maybe I'll, you know, revisit that. And I had written some pieces um, in the interim, but nothing, you know, that I thought was any of any import um, until I realized that I had written some stuff over a 10 year period. So I kind of picked various tracks and the first commercial release was called Compositions, which came out in 2004 on CD Baby. And um, uh, and that's, you know, tracks that I had written, various stuff. It was only one or two things that would be ambient. A lot of it was more electronic um, and kind of experimental, kind of Berlin school. Uh, electronic music um but that was the beginning of my whole process of reconnecting happened come the first hour end of the first hour june 27 2019 dishwap peter show special guest david gerard hold tight for hour two june 27 2019 it's the second hour of the watch from pedro show
Watford Pedro show. We start off the second hour with David Gerard doing Reiki at number 14. Tell us something about that, David. Um, well, it was inspired by Steve Reich. Um, I'm a big, you know, I actually, obviously I have very, very taste of stuff from rock to minimalism. Um, but certainly minimalist performers kind of informed certainly my early work when I was dipping my toe in the electronic waters and, um, had always been a big fan of Steve Reich. Um, turned out that, um, a piece of the desert, which was the first thing I did in 1984, yeah. um, bore a slight thematic resemblance to desert music by Steve Reich, which I was not even aware of until after it came out, and then I discovered that he had written it, and it was kind of interesting, kind of a serendipitous moment, I guess. Coincidence? And so, say what? Coincidence? I don't. I guess it's a coincidence. I would say it's a coincidence. Because he had yeah. no idea of your music. You had no idea of his music. Indeed. And actually, the same thing happened with Mother Mallet. What happened was I had reached out to Dave Borden uh, from uh, Mother Mallet uh, when he was um, teaching at Cornell University. And I basically said, you know, I love Mother Mallet's work and I'm just starting out as a composer and a musician. Would you consider you know, listening to a CD of mine. And I actually just mailed him out a CD um, and he liked it. And we just started a dialogue there. And he and Steve Drews, the, another member of Mother Mallet, had both made this observation that a lot, uh, that several tracks on my earliest recordings um, were very similar to what they had been doing experimentally back in the 70s. And I had not heard anything about them until 2004, five or six or something like that. So it wasn't even like I didn't remember that I had even been exposed to their music. And it was just that was very weird when they told me that it was a very weird coincidence that they said <laughs> that it reminded them of that work, which I also thought was high praise. So I was just like, sure, you know, sure. it's coincidence. But, you know, and I just started out and they're saying, you know, these guys are the ones who really started it all. And they're telling me, you know, that I'm kind of on the same playing field as them. I mean, that was just a huge affirmation for me as a self-taught person. Yeah, sure. I mean, but that's a trippy thing about music. It makes connects in ways you might not think might happen. That's true. I, I totally believe in that. The more I've been writing and the more I've been kind of, put, you know, getting out there and, and doing stuff, the more those moments seem to just kind of happen. Um, I, again, you become open to it when you're just, you know, yeah. in a creative space. You're, you're talking and, like receptive. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So, so to be and receptive, I, and, you got to be kind of sensitive and open-minded, yeah. Yep. Yeah. And then, you know, all sorts of things, you know, just end up happening. Uh, with uh, Al Houghton, the engineer, through him, um, I had met... Um, Dana Colley, the saxophonist for Morphine, and um, he actually worked on a couple of experimental things that I had done, not ambient, but experimental stuff uh, with saxophone, and um, that wouldn't have happened, and that was kind of, you know, a weird moment, because I thought, you know, my stuff doesn't sound like Morphine, will he really be into doing it, 
And uh, but he really liked, you know, the work and some of the tracks, the bed tracks that I had sent to him. And uh, he contributed sax to a couple of things. So there's some things where I've actually borrowed uh, because I had actually um, isolated uh, tracks when I had recorded them. I actually did it on a digital multi-track recorder. And so I had isolated tracks that were on a CDRW. And um, a couple of those I isolated and they found their way onto other tracks. Um, for instance, I, you had played uh, Life Without a Net, and that was on the uh, Electronic Consortium compilation. Right, right, I, well, I played that old right. record. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I played and, lots of uh, records, David. I, I yes. love them. I love them. Yes. And, and so. You know, Mark said, man, that was really sad. What yeah. an incredible. Yeah, two string bass. Yep. And a uh, drummer man, Billy. Yep. Yeah, great cat. Great right. cat. Well, you know, they're, they're soldiering on as um, vapors of morphine. And I've actually seen them, when I lived in Massachusetts, they played a couple of gigs in Salem um, that I checked out. And it was really cool to reconnect with Dana that way and um, hear the guys, you know, pay tribute to their fallen comrade by, um, you know, doing the you know classic morphine tunes, which is really great. And he's just, Dana's just an incredible sax player. Yeah, I, like I mean, a lot. He's, just, he's in demand a lot. I. A friend of mine named Phil Madeira actually has been working with um, Dana on a couple of tracks. Um, on, and he usually does kind of, I hate to use that term, and he'll probably kill me for it, but it's very spiritually informed, and it would be not quite contemporary Christian because it's a little bit edgier than that, but it's definitely Jesus-centered. But he uh, decided to do a jazz album uh, recently, and uh, he connected with Dana, and Dana's playing sax on a couple of tracks on that album. So, very, very, very small world. Yeah, that's <laughs> happening. The healers after that with, uh, why, why, it's weird. And Telomere Repair with Hector Incognito from Metrodex Heyman. Had him on the show last week. Incredible. This guy, he's in the late 60s and still kicking like Cato. Much respect. Uh, and then you said something about Berlin scene. So mm-hmm. I played Berlin After Dark, scene three, Night Fallen. Yes. Is there some kind of connection? Uh, just a coincidental connection, I guess. Um, well, first let me say that the um, sax on that piece isn't Dana. It's Brian Donnelly, a good friend of mine who lives in Massachusetts. Um, I spent uh, two months um, back in 2015 uh, in Germany uh, and about two weeks I spent in Berlin uh, and when I was just you know compiling pieces for this particular album and I went back to some tracks that I had recorded I just felt it had that kind of vibe which um, certainly kind of a nighttime feel there's a lot of down tempo and chill out music that's very popular in Berlin right now um, and disappointingly, at least in my perspective, it's kind of taken over in terms of electronic music. So you don't hear a lot of ambient or a lot of, you know, Berlin school stuff like Tangerine Dream or, or Popol Vuh, which were very popular oh, back in the 70s. Meant. Yeah, okay, okay. Yes. Because, you know, there's so. this weird word, Krautrock, and mm. that just means German guys, I guess. Yes, Indeed. It really doesn't tell you. I mean, you know, there's 10 million different ways. You can't tell me Can and Noy and Faust and Amandul and Tangerine. Yeah. You know what I mean? 
Yeah. So, it's so so trippy about that. So uh, I'm curious. Yeah. I want to play the anxious beating of my tinsel heart. <laughs> okay. It's a great time. <laughs>
Look, we just heard uh, the anxious beating of my tinsel heart. David Gerard, then the indecisive romance Joe Buys with Jason Kahn. Uh, Musicas, Plazinha, Deca, Nerviana, Vojrashni from K. Sorry for my Serbo-Croatian, not so good. And then finally, The Prince of Tides, David Gerard. The Prince of Tides. <laughs> Great title. <laughs> Look, we're at the end of the second hour, June 27, 2019. Special guest, David Gerard. Hold tight for hour three. You know, the country seems to be getting day in and day out. It's like, you know, maybe we would, would do it if we would stop labeling people by, you know, who they love and what country they're from. And, you know, it, you know it's, it's, labeling has not helped us. I think it's just made things, you know, it's certainly divided us a lot more than it's it, united us. So It can, it can I, humanize. I, yeah. Like you're saying, it, it, it can make things simpler, but maybe not in a good way sometimes. Exactly. Look, we're at the beginning... <laughs> June 27th, 2019, it's the third hour of the Lot from Pedro show.
Live for Pedro Show. We start off the third hour with David Gerard doing Transponder. Another umbrella beyond curiosity. Late great Richard Derrick after that. Crane with transitions. And finally, Mezzo Forte. David Gerard. Now, I know the Italians had a lot to do with opera, so a lot of their words are in musical uh, jargon. So this is like medium loud. Yes. <laughs> you know, I'm in Alabama too, Italian guys, so I know a little bit about it. My mom's people came from there. But interesting, off-air people, me and David were discussing terms like ambient, electronic, and uh, I'd like uh, you to hear it from him. Let him know, David. What do you want me to say? <laughs> These terms, well, like his, you were saying to me off-air, this isn't completely an ambient album. Right. And I would agree. And I've done some albums that were that maybe be more so labeled ambient. Um, so but what I you yourself I, term ambient. See, I don't know. Well, see, I consider ambient something that is definitely uh, doesn't have a beat. Um, it's non tempo. It's definitely usually slow. It's something that kind of uh, gradually coalesces. Um, and it's definitely very simple in terms of whatever instrumentation is used. And it's usually primarily, um, you know, keyboard synthesizers, but it could also be guitar. And I've done some things on guitar that were ambient. Um, and there's always some, there's at least one track that's always technically ambient on any of my albums. And on my latest album, uh, Nightscape for Bordy, um, that was a uh, uh, shout out to David Borden from Mother Mallard. Uh, he did an album called Cayuga Night Music, and that was kind of considered ambient, although a couple of tracks were a little rhythmically informed, but most of it was kind of that kind of trippy uh, space like, you know, trance, not in terms of like dance floor trance, but trance in terms of hypnotic. Uh, it washes over you kind so of you, a thing. You're saying ambient kind of describes the aesthetic. It's not talking about the machines. Whereas if I say electronic music, I'm kind of talking about the machines. Yes, I, I would agree with that differentiation, Mike. Now, now, because I'm trying to make a, an idea, like if you were trying to describe to somebody uh, different kinds of uh, guitar music, right? Mm -hmm. a ska, uh, a Black Sabbath, a hard rock, mm -hmm. uh, uh, something, a uh, raga rock with that acid kind of, you know there's a million ways to do rock and roll with a guitar right so, that's correct so by, yeah by just calling it the name of the instruments really ain't telling you a lot mm. so when you have to specify a category like you were talking the dilemma saying electronic music versus ambient or some yeah. of these other categories oh, let's say this all categories it seems aren't created equal i would agree with that yeah, I don't know what the alternative is for that. I mean, you and I are, are pretty eclectic and open and receptive people. And, you know, I know that you and I both listen to a wide range of, of different music. And But other people, for better or worse, need to have some kind of compass in terms of, you know, the, the type of music that they're going to encounter or, or are interested in being exposed to. And, you know, so sometimes it kind of helps to at least give them an idea genre-wise, you know, uh, of what the music is about. Um, but categories are very limiting, obviously, and especially if you do creative stuff, you know. And I've even done my best to try to 
um, approach that. Uh, I mean, I, I released an album called uh, Experimental Pop Art, and that was very minimalist uh, stuff. And I would put that in a minimalist bag to describe it, not ambient. And there was nothing certainly ambient on that. Um, and um, But I also think electronic, there's a, there's a little bit of a... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? There's a little bit of a crossover... Um, with uh, electronic and ambient music, like some things can be strictly uh, like a drone uh, of a couple of tones that kind of reverberate. Um, and then you can have something where it's kind of, it has some tones, but it also has like a sequencer going on. And the sequencer actually provides a rhythmic background, uh, especially if you're like arpeggiating stuff. Right, pattern. <laughs> yes. You know, you were talking about Nightscape for Bordy. Mm-hmm. Very obviously personal song to a guy who inspires you. I want to play that right now.
Watt from Pedro Show. Yeah, that's David Gerard doing Nightscape for Brody. Last music for this edition. The leftist doing I'm Desperate. Now, the shit zoo. And then finally, the longest piece on the new album, Mountaintops. David Gerard. Yeah, Mountaintops. You know, Massachusetts, the Bronx. Kind of a dream. Have you ever been to the mountains? Uh, I have. When I lived in New York City, uh, I used to try to spend sometime at least every summer going up to Bear Mountain State Park, ah. and uh, which is, if you're familiar with that, it's no, really some kind Bob of Dylan awesome. Bob songs about it. Yeah. So it's really, and I've, and I've always kind of liked that um, idea. And when I started just writing the piece, it was just kind of evolving into something that sort of became very majestic. And so for me, the idea of mountains and scaling mountains and peaks and all of that just kind of coalesced in my mind. And it just felt like, you know, it worked for me for that. I could visualize kind of that, you know, seeing somebody trying to, you know, scale Mount McKinley or something to this soundtrack to like a nature film or something. So that's why I kind of came up with that title. It kind of evoked the mood for me. So the titles, they come after the music comes first. It depends. I want to, I almost want to say half and half. Um, Most of the times they kind of come while I'm writing them. Um, And sometimes I try to conceptualize ideas and I like, I'll just write a couple of working titles on a piece of paper and without any uh, preconceived idea of what I'm going to do with anything with it. And then sometimes those titles speak to me and they give me an idea of what I want to convey mood wise in the piece. Um, but a lot of pieces kind of happen either during the recording or after the recording. I mean, during um, Prince of Tides came to me because obviously, you know, this piece is, kind of flowing and it has you know, you've got seagulls and sure. you know lapping waves kind of uh, field recordings going on so it had to be kind of a shore like title and um, I just came up with that title probably just almost uh, as kind of a clue into people if they even remember the book uh, and the movie of the same title so that's why I kind of I, 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 I tend to try occasionally to put uh, subliminal pop culture references and stuff that I do just to see if people are will pick up on it or not. Yeah, that's a trip. Where can people find you on the internet, David? Uh, well, they can find my music um, on digital outlets. They can find uh, me on Spotify, uh, iTunes. What Google about your Play. own website? You got your own website, David? Yes, my own website is ambientism, A-M-B-I-E-N-T-I-S-M, Com. And that's where most of my most recent stuff is. But I also try to make sure that, uh, you know, people who don't deal with Bandcamp can also access my music elsewhere. Of course. But that's that's why you, it's like a fanzine, right? You got your own fanzine. No filter, no middleman. I love it. Yes. David, where do you see the future of Ambient? Where's it going? I don't know, actually. Okay, that's a good well, answer. Yeah, that's a good answer. Well, I'll tell you what. I, I, I've been actually experimenting with... Um, which will probably come out in like future releases. I've been thinking about incorporating different sounds um, 
from different cultures, more exotic instrumentation. And I know some people are kind of working with that now, so it's not like, you know, I'm reinventing the wheel. But I do see trying to um, look at things to uh, use to generate sound or tones or music that you wouldn't necessarily apply to. And I definitely want to do some work a lot more uh, doing stuff with uh, ambient guitar. I love playing, uh, messing around with uh, an ebo on my guitar and coming up with interesting tonalities and and kind of drone scapes with that. And so I think it's kind of moving in that direction. Um, but a lot of the other genres of music are definitely evolving more, um, like the electronica and the you know and the chill out and the dubstep stuff tends to be a little bit more um, experimental, although I've been told my music is experimental, so I guess it depends on your perspective. For me, experimental is okay. It's been a big <laughs> honor to have you on the show, really. And I yeah. want you to keep on, keep it on. Very interesting. You're talking about field record. Maybe that's where the new rhythms uh, in your road down Ambientville yeah, like the waves, the rhythm of the waves or the wind or stuff like that. Yeah, awesome. I should also make a quick plug because we were talking about me writing music very briefly. Um, that uh, my music blog is the music that you hear. Um, and I've done, you know, reviews and interviews like I did an interview with you up there on there. So if people want to see another side of me. I mean, I've been writing about music um, for almost as long as I've been composing music and um so the music that you hear is my blog where they can see me reviewing stuff and revisiting musical uh things that have nothing to do with me personally but just the stuff that i love and stuff that i like to listen to well music's a big tent <laughs> <laughs> david thank you so much for being on the show it's truly an honor yeah come back it's on an again. honor uh, when you get some of these new records down you come back on we'll talk about them okay Definitely, and I'm glad we finally got a chance to do this because we've been talking about it for a long time. <laughs> I'm so and sorry. I and and I still want to do Orson something Wells. with you. Yeah, I'd love to collaborate with you. Uh, okay, remember we need Orson, to make that happen. Remember what Orson been... Welles said, no yeah. wine before it's time. Uh-huh. Well, I don't want the wine to turn sour, so let's get, <laughs> let's get our butts in here. Point, good point. <laughs> make it 20, uh, not July, June 29, 2019 edition, Walk for Pedro Show, keep you powder dry. <laughs>